First Peter chapter 2. Like uh, most people here, perhaps, you are someone who spends most of your working week at your job, or training for a job, or thinking about your job, or maybe you're one of the rarer people in our church where you're retired from your job. Uh, I trust that's a great blessing to you. <laughs> and you might as well just go and get coffee now, because this morning's message is about work. And about what God has to say to us about our jobs. Is God interested in my job? Perhaps you come this morning and you're thinking about your job, what you've got to do tomorrow, what you've got to do next, how you need to be effective in the week, how you need to be more efficient, how you need to maximize profits for your company or solve problems or lead a team or uh, whatever it might be. Perhaps you're, you have questions about, why does God have me spend so much time working? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe you think about your particular job. Why do I do this? Is it all worth it? Should I just quit? Where does work fit into God's intentions for my life? Is my job shaping me and my Christian life? Or is my Christian life shaping me and how I function in my job? How do I work so as it doesn't just feel like I'm on a treadmill just earning money to pay the bills, but I can do it as a sold-out disciple for Jesus. Perhaps you come here this morning, and maybe this is more where we're at, and you wonder about, how, what is, oh, I've got a difficult boss, or I've got a colleague or a co-worker that doesn't like me, and I don't like them, and it's a difficult working environment. And that's sometimes the hardest thing, isn't it, when we think about our jobs, uh, it, the, the hardest thing about our jobs is the people we work with. <laughs> no, I'm looking at you so that you can amen the people that you work with, because Matt's terrible. Uh, you know, sometimes the people that we work with are rude, they're uncaring, they're unreasonable, or they're cutthroat, or they're, they're incompetent. And we have trouble with the people that we work with. And actually, some of those people make our lives frustrating. They make our week painful. Maybe, maybe you come here this morning with a question about, oh, does God really care about my job? Well, Peter says yes. And we're going to see how he says yes and why he says yes in today's passage. Now, remember this is set in the context of verses 11 and 12, that general principle of Christians in a world that doesn't follow Jesus. We're to live like aliens, fight like soldiers, behave like ambassadors. And then we said he's, gonna, he's drilling down into the detail. So last week, we looked at, is God interested in my politics? And we said, yes, he is. Now this week, is God interested in my job? Yes. So let's read from verses 18 to 23, and we're going to hear how God is interested in our job, and hopefully we're going to address the questions that we have about difficult bosses, difficult co-workers, difficult working environments, and what God thinks about our work. This is what God's word says to us, verse 18. Servants, or actually the Greek word is slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, 
When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, well, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let me pray and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak directly into our everyday situations. And particularly this morning, how you speak into the everyday situation of our work and our employment and our life. We pray we'd hear your voice speaking this morning. We'd cling to what you say and that it would change us and shape us as we think about our work. That a change in perspective would change our hearts that might change our situations and our environments and how we respond at work. We pray these things so that we might be sold out disciples of Jesus, following him in a world that doesn't, living like an alien, fighting like a soldier, behaving like an ambassador for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, the first thing to say is Peter doesn't mention the word work, does he? He talks about slaves. Now, when he talks about slaves and not employers or employees, we can think, well, he's not really addressing us this morning then because I'm not a slave. But if we can just dive into the text for a moment and think about the culture and the, the ancient Near Eastern worldview at the time, we'll see that actually when, Paul, uh, when Peter addresses slaves and masters, uh, it's a good parallel to employers and employees in the modern world. Now, One other thing to say before we get going is that slavery often makes us feel very uncomfortable when it crops up in the Bible because we wonder at times, why does the Bible not completely um, address slavery and call for its immediate abolition? Because we have uh, a tendency to read slavery in light of the horrific and sinful degradation of black people in 19th century America and the British Empire that has loaded the word slave and slavery with a baggage that is uh, not accurate for the first century world in which Peter is writing. So we have images, as I say, of the mistreatment of slaves uh, from Africa, transported to America, to the British Empire, and they were horrendously treated. But in the first century, slavery was, was different. It was generally, uh, there was a general kind of well-treatment of slaves uh, in the culture. And the slaves weren't unskilled laborers who just lived out on plantations. They were people who worked in homes. Yes, they did. But they were also often managers or overseers of businesses. They may, they may have been trained members of various professions. So there's le- ancient literature that talks about slaves being doctors and nurses and teachers and musicians and artists. And they were normally paid for their service. So it wasn't a slavery like we understand it. And actually, Roman law had extensive legislation to protect slaves to ensure that they were fairly treated in the culture. 
However, nonetheless, all that said, the life of a slavery wasn't voluntary. It wasn't something that you signed up for. You would often end up in slavery because you were a prisoner of war or because um, you were kidnapped or for economic reasons. You couldn't afford to pay your bills, and so you ended up in the slavery of a master. And sometimes some masters were unscrupulous, and they treated slaves badly. So, although there's no exact parallel between slaves and masters and employees and employers, this slave-master relationship was definitely the most common kind of employment or employer relationship in the ancient world. And so, and as it encompassed a broad range of kind of industries and work, it, it is a good parallel for us. And so the directives that Peter makes to slaves are good for employees. So let's ask ourselves the question, How does this passage now speak into the situation of our working lives? Well, if you want to capture it in a sentence, hopefully this will come up. And this is what I hope you will take away this morning. It's this sentence, that God is pleased when his people trust him and imitate the example of Jesus in the midst of unjust suffering. God is pleased when his people trust him and imitate the example of Jesus in the midst of unjust suffering. So what we're going to see this morning is Peter sets out a command to submit to our masters and our employers. Then he's going to give us two motivations to do it because he recognizes that it's hard. And then what we're going to do is we're going to make some specific application ourselves from the truth of Scripture. So here's the command to submit. Verse 18, be subject to your masters. It's the same word that we saw last week in verse 13, where Peter called us to be subject to governments and civil authorities. So he's describing for us and commanding Christians like you and me to a willing uh, acceptance of our bosses over us and a willing obedience to the directives that they give us. And it's again a comprehensive command. Be subject means we're to submit as employees to our employers, to our bosses, to our supervisors, to our line managers in everything that they ask us to do. Except sinful things. Like we said, if the, if the government commands sinful things, we disobey. If our bosses or our workplaces command us to do sinful things, we should disobey. But it does not include stupid things. All right. Now, some of you might be sitting there and thinking, my boss asks me, in my humble opinion, to do foolish things, brainless things, stupid things, empty-headed things, things that are beneath me, things that are juvenile and ridiculous and half-baked. Well, unless they're sinful things, even if they're stupid things, Peter calls us here to willingly and joyfully submit. That's the challenge. That's the command. When we turn up at our place of work tomorrow or the next time that we're in, Peter's words, be subject to your masters, means we should follow what they ask us to do. Then he goes on and describes something else at the end of verse 18 where he says to us, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, actually, the word respect there in the original language is fear. We're to do this with all fear. But if you remember last week in verse 17, and you could just back up a little bit, 
Peter tells us that the only person that we should fear is God. And he's going to go on in chapter 3, in verse 6, in verse 14, to tell us that we should not fear other people. So how do we make sense of this command? That we're to subject ourselves to our masters with all fear. Well, I think when you put it together in the wider context, what Peter is saying is this. We submit to our bosses, to our employers, out of fear to God. Out of reverence to God. Our willing and joyful submission in the workplace should be done as an act of worship to God. All our work, all our submission, all our our obedience should be done as an act of worship to God. Now, if you think about that just for a second, that has some implications for us. Okay, One of the implications that comes to mind is this. We don't work only because our boss is watching us. We don't work only because there's a quarterly performance review coming. We don't work only for our annual bonus. We work as an act of worship to God. Then Peter spells out another implication. We submit to our boss with all fear and reverence for God, and it doesn't make a difference if they're good or bad. Look at it, what it says in verse 18. Be subject to your masters with all fear of God, not only to the good and the gentle masters, but also to the unjust. If you've got a horrible boss... (coughs) Peter doesn't give you the excuse of getting out from underneath him. The word in verse 18 of unjust actually means crooked. It means it speaks of the moral bankruptcy of our bosses. And so Peter says, if you're a Christian and you're a slave or an employee, you have to do whatever your boss or your master dictates, that you have to do it even if they're wicked. Even if they're dishonest regarding what they pay you, or your working conditions, or they make unreasonable demands of you, or they load you up with unreasonable expectations, when they're, even if they're crooked. Even if your boss is unscrupulous and takes advantage of people and takes advantage of every opportunity to get ahead and he tramples on others to get to the top. And that includes you and your rights. Peter calls us to submit to our bosses. He doesn't give us any opt-out clauses. He doesn't give us the ability to say, oh, they're evil, therefore I don't obey. So, for instance, if you are working in an office and your boss asks you to write a letter to someone and he does it in a rude and uh, disgusting manner and you think he's just an, a horrible person, he just, his face, the only place his face deserves to be on is on a dartboard. Okay, if you think about that, if that's how you think about your boss, you think, oh, he's a horrible person. He says, will you do this for me? You cannot refuse just because he's evil. Unless the content of the email or the meeting or the letter that he asks you to write is sinful or would be sin for you to participate in. And then you have to appeal to him. But just because he's horrible doesn't mean we can disobey. Now, it's, it is, isn't it? It's far easier to submit to a boss who's a paragon of virtue, who's kind, who's gracious, who's respectable, who's full of goodwill and cheer. But when your boss is a flat-out jerk, oh, arrogant, self-righteous, self-absorbed, that's where the rubber hits the road. Peter knows that. And how we respond in those moments reveals our hearts. 
It reveals who we're really working for and who we're really worshipping. Will we do it out of all fear of God? Now, verse 18 is radical and hard and countercultural. And Peter knows this. So then he begins to offer two reasons or two motivations for why we should obey. And you can see that in the text because the word, the English word for is repeated three times. It, it, it means because. So he says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For, because, this is a gracious thing. And then he describes what the gracious thing is. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For, there's the word again, because what credit is it to you if when you sin and are beaten, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, then this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, what does he mean? Well, he means the first motivation is this. We submit out of reverence to God because we, are, we want to receive a reward from God. This is what he's talking about in verses 19 and 20. The first motivation to submit to our bosses is to receive a reward from God. Now, verse 19 presents the general principle that those who suffer unjustly will be rewarded by God. And then verse 20 unpacks it a little bit. And I think it's all based on Jesus' teaching of Luke chapter 6, which we don't have time to go to, but you could read it in your own time. In Luke chapter 6, 32 to 35, Jesus presents this argument to the people, that he, and he says, basically, if you are the kind of person who loves only friends and only family, then really you're, you're no different from an unbeliever. But Christians should be marked by a love for others, including sinners and enemies. And here, Peter takes that kind of general principle, and he says, he says, if your boss is always on at you because you're late for work, because you miss deadlines, because you aren't meeting your targets and managing your workload well, and if you have an unprofessional manner, and an uncourteous manner towards customers and colleagues, and your appearance looks like you walk to work through a hedge backwards, and they reprimand you, or they come alongside you, and they warn you, that is not unjust suffering. That's just getting what you deserve for being useless, or incompetent, or lazy. And it doesn't matter if your boss is an obnoxious ogre and treats you badly and shouts at you, that's your just deserts. What credit is that to you? You know, If when you, are, when you do wrong and you are reprimanded, there's no, you just get what you deserve. However, if you are mindful of God and you're working ultimately for him and it's reflected in your effort and your diligence and your hard work, but your boss constantly makes you the butt of their jokes, and constantly discriminates against you and credits other people with your work or passes over you for particular tasks or fails to uh, give you the opportunity for a promotion or tramples on your rights or loads you with overbearing burdens and extra works because you are a Christian, then that is unjust suffering. And if you stand up under it, God will give you a reward. Now, what is that reward? Well, I think it's this, and it's tied to what Peter's already said in chapter 1. 
Because when we experience unjust suffering, if you're like me, when in those moments, those small moments when I've experienced unjust suffering at the hands of others for being a Christian, my natural inclination is, and, and my sense of self-protection is for revenge or rage or rebellion. Three R's so we can remember them. We rage at someone. We get angry. I can't believe they would do this to me. Or we say, I'm not going to do that. And we rebel. I'm not going to do it. How dare they speak to me like that? I'm not going to do it. Or we plan revenge. And we say, oh, I'll do this, but I'm going to get them back. And you go off to B&Q and you buy a a box of six-inch nails and you plant them carefully under each of your boss's tires. (laughs) Don't tell me you've never thought about that. And if you haven't, you could have that one for free. <clears throat> but Peter says, if we endure, it's a gracious thing. It's God's grace to us. And it's precisely in those moments of enduring under unjust suffering that our faith shows itself to be genuine or not. Do you remember? Go back to chapter 1, verse 7, where he says to us, or verse 6, In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter said, put these two things together. Peter says, if you can stand up under unjust suffering, that's God's grace to you. And it said, when you experience that and you stand up, when your natural inclination is to do everything but stand up, when it's to rage and rebel and to plot revenge, when you stand up under the unjust suffering, that's God's grace to you. And in that moment, you can know your faith is genuine and it will bring a reward of assurance And hope to you that I have been born again to a living hope. I have been saved. He has changed me. Because left to myself, I would do all those other things. And that must mean that I'm on course to receive the glorious inheritance that God is keeping for me. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. There's a reward in it that we will know that we're genuinely converted, that we genuinely have been saved. That when we do what is right and yet we suffer for it and we endure it, that's a grace thing to us. And God delights to reward our faithfulness, not because we deserve it or earn it, but because he delights to be generous to his people. So we, we are motivated to submit to our bosses to receive that reward, to receive God's grace to us and his assurance to us that our faith is genuine and that our hope is true and that everything that is promised to us is ours. But then he gives us a second motivation. You find that in verses 21 to 23, and that's this. We're called to imitate Jesus. So we submit to our masters in imitation of Jesus. Now, multiple times in the New Testament, the the Bible makes clear that the life of a Christian is a life of unjust suffering. Sorry about that. You don't often see this on coffee cups or t-shirts or pictures on the walls that hang in the houses of Christians. But here's some, a selection of verses. Acts 14, 22. 
when Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary journeys, when they had preached the gospel to this particular city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Why? Saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How do you get into the kingdom of God? Through many tribulations, a life of hardship and suffering. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Paul again says, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel to you, to establish you and exhort you in your faith. Why? So that no one may be moved by afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for a life of affliction. Then perhaps the most famous one, 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul again says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution, unjust suffering, is not a sign that we have done something wrong or that God has lost control of the world and failed us. Actually, it's a reality that Christ himself promised us. As you read through Mark, you'll get to chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says this, or where Mark says this about Jesus. And calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's a life of unjust suffering, the Christian life. And Peter just says the same thing here in verse 21. He says, for to this, this life of unjust suffering, you've been called. It's not all health and wealth and prosperity, the Christian life. It's a life predominantly of unjust suffering. Why? Because that was part and parcel of the life of Jesus. Because Jesus faced un unjust suffering. And as his body, we're connected to his head, or to him as the head. And just like in childbirth, you know, when you're pregnant and the baby's down, they, Joe will tell you, they like to get the head, they want the head down because then the, as the head goes out first, so the body comes out easily afterwards. The body follows the head. And as Christ is our head and he endured unjust suffering, so the body will, just like the head. And Jesus, in his cross work at Calvary, suffered for us as a substitutionary sacrifice of atonement. And Matt's going to cover that next week, verses 24 and 25 of this chapter. But here Peter fo focuses on the example of Jesus. And the word example is, is, is a word that was used to describe how children learn to write the letters of the alphabet by tracing over the letters. Have you ever done that with your kids? You know, to teach them how to write letters, you sort of do dots and then they trace it or you put a bit, you know, you write in black marker and then you put a paper over the top and they trace it through. That's what it means. It means literally we trace Jesus' example into our own lives. We follow his example. Juan Sanchez, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says this. Tracing Jesus' footsteps, being a true follower of Jesus, 
will take Christians on the road marked with unjust suffering. If, we've never, if we're never inconvenienced because of our faith, then we need to evaluate whether or not our faith is worth persecuting. If you haven't suffered for Jesus, you have to question. We have to question. I have to question. Am I really following him? Because comfort and Christianity, he goes on to say, are usually incompatible. And if we follow Jesus' steps, we will suffer. And as we follow Jesus' steps, we need to learn to suffer in the way that he suffered. So now the question comes, well, how did Jesus suffer? And Peter describes it for us in verses 21 to 23. And he alludes heavily to Isaiah chapter 53 and the, the prophet's portrayal of the Messiah as a suffering servant. He tells us that Jesus was one in whom there was no sin. He didn't sin when he suffered unjustly. He had no anger, no bitterness, no self-righteousness, no self-pity. He was without sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't try and lie or cover himself and try and get out from underneath what was going on. There was no reviling. He didn't throw insults and use abusive speech to those who insulted and abused him. He didn't threaten. He didn't lash out, try intimidation tactics, plan revenge against those who upset him and persecuted him. Jesus didn't bite his tongue. He didn't suppress his anger. He didn't just kind of keep calm and carry on. Neither did he find some therapeutic way of expressing his anger at some other time, like he just went home and cried into his pillow. No, Jesus wasn't finding some self-dependent solution. He instead endured suffering by entrusting himself to God. Look with me at the end of verse 23. He did not sin. He did not, no deceit was found in his mouth. He did not revile. He did not threaten but he continued in an ongoing way every day, entrusting himself to who? To God who judges justly. Do you see that connection there that Peter makes? Jesus could endure unjust suffering because his trust was in a God who judges justly. He recognized, I don't have to be a Marvel superhero and be a vigilante and take justice into my own hands. I can trust God with it. I can trust God with it. Everything that happens to me now, unjustly, there'll be a reckoning in the future when God will bring justice on the, on the oppressed and justice on the oppressor. Where God will bring justice to the persecuted and justice to the persecutor. And so Jesus entrusted himself to God as a just judge, knowing that there would be a day coming when God would right all wrongs, set right what is uh, everything that was unjust, punished the evildoer, and therefore he just had to wait patiently. And as we follow his example, that's what we're called to do too. Not to don a mask and a cape and run around like Batman of the office or the warehouse. Trying to Put right all injustices as some paragon of virtue ourselves. No, Paul, uh, Peter sorry, calls us here to entrust ourselves to a just judge who will right all the wrongs against us. 
And therefore, we can submit to unjust masters and bosses and employers without any resentment, without any rebellion, without any rage, without any thoughts of revenge or self-pity or despair because we know God's got our back. And in the end, he'll make sure that his people are protected and the evildoers receive their punishment. He's got our backs. Therefore, we can submit to our bosses and our difficult work colleagues and our difficult working environment out of fear and reverence for God. Now, let me just make four very quick, specific applications about what this might look like in our workplaces this week, whether our bosses are good or bad. First one is this. There should be a, a happy submission to God, uh, to, to God's authority that he's placed in our workplace. Like we said, it's easy to submit to your boss if they're nice and likable, but it's very difficult to submit to our bosses if, they, if we consider them to be like the devil incarnate. But Jesus' example of no sin, no deceit, no reviling, no threatening means that we should speak well of our bosses to outsiders, even if they're horrible. We should speak well of our colleagues, even if they're horrible. We should respect them. We should protect their reputations as much as we can. We should pray for them, that God would bring them to repentance and trust Christ for salvation. We should pray for ourselves that we'll be able to submit to our bosses and work for them and work with them with joy, not just a kind of dutiful resignation. Faith-fueled service of God in the workplace means a willing and joyful and happy submission to those that God has placed over us. Even when it's not fun. Even when it's not fair. Secondly, let there be a determination among us not to complain. The example of Jesus, no sin, no deceit, no reviling, no threats, would encompass our desire to complain. You know, if you think about, like, I mean, think about the office environment that you work in or the people that you work with. The common currency, the common language that most people speak in the workplace is one of complaint. They complain about everything. Complain it's too hot, it's too cold. My pay packet is too small. The government takes too much in tax. Uh, the coffee is horrible. They, they make unreasonable expectations and demands of us. We complain. It's the common currency around the water cooler. And so as Christians, it would be rare and astonishing to be known as people who don't complain. Paul speaks right into this in Philippians chapter 2 where he says this, Do all things without grumbling or complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our non-complaining shines the light of the gospel into the darkness of our world. So let there be a determination amongst us not to complain. Now, having said that, that's not easy, is it? And some, legit, some complaints are legit. You know, if you're experiencing sexual harassment at work, you should raise that in the right way with your employer. But complaining about your colleague because they didn't do this or that in the way that you wanted it done, or the coffee's not good, or they made a cup of tea and it was cold by the time it got to me, those complaints, 
Don't be a gossip. Don't be a grouse. Don't let us be complainers. Stop rolling our eyes and huffing at people as Christians. Let's have a determination not to complain. Thirdly, let's cultivate humility in our workplaces. Jesus was humble, wasn't he? No sin, no deceit, no reviling, no threats. That was humble. There was a humility to him. But the reality is most of the problems in our workplaces arise because we, A, think more highly of ourselves than we should, or B, we think we're above the work that we're given. I shouldn't have to do that. Oh, I'm much more valuable than this. But Paul, again, speaks in Philippians chapter 2, right into that situation where he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others and have the same mind of Christ. And then he goes on to describe, doesn't he? Although Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a slave. Same word as Peter uses. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in this human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. What does this all mean for us? It means this. No matter how important you think you are, and, how, and no matter how lowly the task is that you have been given by your boss, you have never, ever, 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 ever stooped as low as Jesus did to save you. And therefore, there should be a conspicuous humility to Christians. <clears throat> so let's work willingly not begrudgingly, happy to do tasks that no one else wants to do and not be a martyr about it. Love others, encourage others, serve others, not because they're worth it or deserve it, but because Jesus is worth it. And he treated us as we didn't be, should, as we don't deserve. And then finally, fourth, have faith. This is a life we've been called to. God is sovereign over us. And although at first blush it appears that a life of unjust suffering can be very despairing and dismaying, actually it's in those moments of unjust suffering where we experience the closeness and the presence of God and the deepness of fellowship with him that we would have never experienced had we not gone through those things. So let's have faith. God is sovereign and he's at work. He's put us where we are. For a very good reason. What's that reason? To glorify God in our workplaces. Let me close with this quote from this great book. This is uh, Sebastian Treger and Greg Gilbert, The Gospel at Work. And in, their, in one of the final chapters, they make this remark. There aren't any magic formulas for dealing with difficult bosses and colleagues. But sometimes a change in perspective can lead to a change in heart, which changes everything. Our workplaces can be gloriously sanctifying places for us. Conflict, difficult authority figures, competitive co-workers are just some of the things that God uses to mold and shape us into the Jesus-reflecting people he wants us to be. Don't resent it if he's put those things in your life right now. Instead, figure out how he wants you to respond to them in order to become more like Jesus. Remember, you're in your job, not just to pay the bills, not just to advance your career. You're there to serve Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, thank you this morning for your grace to us and your word. May we be a people who do not complain, who have faith in you and cultivate a humility and a happy submission to our employers and to our bosses and to our supervisors and to our line managers out of fear and reverence and respect and worship of you. May we follow the example of Jesus and entrust ourselves to you who judges justly, even in the face of unjust suffering that we might receive. Let us be people who shine the light of the gospel into the dark places of our world and our working environments so that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.